work beef before, Billy? Yeah. Worked a little out Fort Sumner way. Pete Maxwell's place. Did the chow line. But, uh, I got away with cattle. So jolly funny, Master Stephen. That's no proper table manners. I had a with hogs. <laughs> Congratulations, Charles. You and Stephen will be doing the dirty crockery alone this evening. <clears throat> Sorry, John, struck me funny. And to William, both of you. Apologies, William. Just hacking on you, that's all. Yeah, we was just hacking on you. Rumor has it you killed a man, Billy. You don't seem like the killing sort. Yeah, Billy, what you kill him for? He was hacking on me. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which flick we choose for each episode, we'll have a lot of fun sharing our memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. The Western, which used to be as common in Hollywood as superhero movies are now, enjoyed a surprising revival in popularity in the late 1980s into the 90s. The genre, of course, fizzled out again and faded from memory. Film financiers didn't see a profit in it and audiences lost their appetite for it. However, for a good six years, westerns were cool again. They won Oscars, starred some of the biggest names in Hollywood, and inspired Bon Jovi to sing about riding on steel horses and being shot down in a blaze of glory. It all started with this 80s flick, which was once known as the Brat Pack Western. The passion project of a 27-year-old screenwriting wonder kid and largely financed through money from Subaru dealerships, this Billy the Kid movie may have failed to garner much critical respect, but it remains one of the most beloved modern westerns. So grab your cowboy hat, your six-shooter, and join Laramie Wells and I as we mount up with the regulators to discuss Young Guns from 1988 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. Welcome in, everybody. It's another great episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. I'm your host, Tim Williams, and good, glad to have my good friend, Mr. Laramie Wells, back on another episode. How you doing, Laramie? I'm good. I'm, I, I'm wanted, dead or alive. <laughs> I was going to say, are you ready to ride? Regulators, mount up. Mount up. And we'll see how many times we can say, Billy, Billy, the way uh, Charlie Sheen says, Billy, Billy. Charlie Sheen's accent. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're just going to jump right in. So uh, tell me about how you saw Young Guns on TV for the first time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that was it. Uh, pretty sure I saw it on 
like TBS or TNT or something. Right. Way back right. when. Um, yeah, I know it was in high school. Okay. Uh, couldn't tell you exactly when, but I know it was sometime, so sometime in the late 90s was when I finally mm-hmm. saw it. Uh, loved it immediately. Went out and bought it. I even think, I want to say this was one of those DVDs that was in the butterfly case. So... Oh yeah, 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 yeah it was because yeah. I had that copy. Yep, yeah, I think You're I still have right. that copy. But, <laughs> yeah, yep. So that tells you that I, I went out and got it immediately after I saw it. Now, because because you're younger than me, did you see Young Guns two first and then went back and saw Young Guns, or did you see Young Guns the first one first? Not to my knowledge. To my knowledge, okay. I saw the first Young Guns. I, I saw Young Guns one first. Okay. Um, you know what? Now that I'm even telling you, I told you all about the DVD. I actually think I bought it on VHS first. Yeah. And later got it on DVD. But uh, but no, I I bought Young Guns. I saw Young Guns first, and I actually think when I was buying Young Guns, I saw Young Guns two. Okay. And so I I saw it when I bought. Uh, I just went ahead and bought it. So yeah, for me, uh, this one I did not see in the theater. I remember renting this one and watching it uh, probably on VHS. I think you're right. I think I remember this being on VHS for like 88. Yeah, that's probably right. Um, yeah, because we didn't really get into DVDs until the late 90s. But I remember you know, having an older sister who was a big fan of Charlie Sheen and, and uh, Kiefer Sutherland. So this was definitely one of her picks that she wanted to watch. But of course, being a... I mean, not to say I'd seen many Westerns at that point, but... We was like a family movie we watched like a Friday or a Saturday night. Yeah, I remember watching it and just thinking it was great. It was a great shoot 'em up western with these actors that I'd seen in other other movies, and I thought it was a a cool concept. My dad was not as impressed because he was more <laughs> of the classic western. <laughs> That's what he was used to, so uh, yep. he was he was not as impressed with it as as me and my sister were. But it was still enjoyable. I I've heard though that. Some historians actually say that this is one of the best depictions mm-hmm. of Billy the Kid. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that when we get into pre-production. Yeah, this is probably the most... Somebody had said, I think in the 90s, that this was the most accurate per, uh, portrayal of Billy the Kid and the uh, uh, what happened with the, the, the wars. The Lincoln the, County War. So when was the last time you saw it before we watching it for the podcast? Honestly, I think it was college. <laughs> been a while. I really don't think, yeah. It, you know what? It's been a while, but when I started watching it, every single scene, it was like I had just watched it mm-hmm. a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there wasn't any scene that I went, ooh, I don't remember that. Right. No, I right. remembered every last bit of it. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely one of those that I know I had on VHS, I know I had on DVD, and I've watched several, several times, and probably wa- I probably even had... Uh, whenever it came on TV, I recorded it on a VHS and probably watched the TV version, which probably wasn't too much different. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of the language, some of the violence was probably toned down a little bit, but not... And not Emilio's backside. Yeah, yeah, that was probably blurred out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, the tub scene, one of my sister's favorites. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, it had been... It had not been that long for me. I, was, I, I had to correct myself, because I remember... And this was right before we moved back to Georgia. So about, what, four, no, five years ago now, I think I heard Blaze of Glory, like, playing when we were out somewhere eating dinner 
And then somebody had an 80s, 90s mix going on, and I heard Blaze of Glory, and I was like, oh, man, I want to go back and watch Young Guns 2. And I was like, no, I can't watch Young Guns 2 until I watch Young Guns 1. And so uh, at that point, it was it was available on some, one of the streaming services. And so I just you know got home probably like a day or two later, but uh, I watched Young Guns, and then as soon as it was over, I just went in, clicked on the next one, and let it start Young Guns 2, and watched them both kind of back-to-back, So, which isn't the best way to watch those two movies, because they're not that well-connected. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but uh, both still still a fun watch uh, for both of them, and I when I watched it then, I realized it had been longer since I'd seen Young Guns, than I'd seen Young Guns 2. Like, I had watched Young Guns 2 much more frequently than I think I'd watched uh, the first Young Guns. So Yeah, they're not connected at all because you can clearly tell that Young Guns was not intended to no. have a sequel. They're, especially now, going back and watching it after seeing the second one, there are very much certain scenes that, like, if they were going to make a sequel, especially the sequel they made, they would not have used, they would not have shot that scene. or Like used him meeting Pat Garrett? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. A few times. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we'll get into all that. So, all right, you ready to jump into story origin and pre-production? Sure. So, uh, interesting fun fact on this one, I don't really talk much about when I'm doing research, but usually I pull a lot of my research from Wikipedia, mainly because it pulls from a lot of different sources. I usually get a, a pretty, you know, I kind of start there and then I'll kind of confirm or deny certain things or read there. I was shocked when I went to Wikipedia and they had nothing about pre-production or story origin for this movie at all. And I was like... Okay, does this, how did this movie get made? And so I was able to find a really good article uh, that gave some good clarity and some detail, which I, as I dug a little deeper, got some confirmation on stuff. So this is a little bit more lengthy probably than it could it, it should be. <laughs> but uh, with this as being, I guess, supposed to be the first biopic, quote-unquote, that we've done, so you're kind of dealing with some true life stuff. So it has a little bit more uh, more attention to detail. So here, with all that said... Here we go. More so than most prior Billy the Kid movies, the story is based in history. At the age of 18, Billy, born Henry McCarty, became a central figure in the Lincoln County Wars, which was really an escalating series of skirmishes between merchants competing for government contracts to supply an army fort and an Indian reservation in New Mexico. The 24-year-old John Tunstall, not at all the father figure he's always depicted in the film, uh, thought he could fairly compete with the monopoly held by James Dolan and Lawrence Murphy, played in the film with sneering glee by Jack Palance. He thought wrong, obviously, and his murder set off a series of revenge killings, culminating in a five-day siege known as the Battle of Lincoln. Billy's genuinely stunning escape from that battle fed his legend, but also further motivated authorities to hunt him down. Rather than run for the border or flee for another state, he foolishly stuck around in New Mexico, watching most of his fellow regulators mowed down before he himself was shot dead by Pat Garrett in 1881. He was only 21 years old. So that's the true story. (laughs) So by 1988, John Fusco, who grew up collecting material and works of research on Billy the Kid, knew all of his backwards and forwards. He said, I was about 10 years old when I saw my first photograph of Billy the Kid. This little five foot four rodent-faced character in the photo just didn't correspond with the legend of Billy, the noble bandit dressed in black that he had seen in other adaptations. Indeed, in the Western's heyday, playing Billy the Kid was a rite of passage for certain actors. Roy Rogers, Audie Murphy, Paul Newman, and Chris Christopherson all got their turn. However, historical 
uh, fealty often gave way to pulpy myth-making and eventually cartoonish ridicule, as in 1966's Billy the Kid vs. Dracula, which sounds like a movie that Lambert's probably seen once or twice. I've heard of it, never seen it. Gotcha. The only film version of Billy which Fusco recognized as being remotely close to the actual historical figure was Michael J. Pollard's turn in 1972's Dirty Little Billy. Fusco considered Billy's cause to be just, but his actions were often anything but, clearly the killing spree of a psychopath. Pollard appropriately played him as a drooling, stumbling moron, far removed from the figure of legend. However, whereas most other Billy the Kid movies at least paid some lip service to the historical details, as exaggerated as they might have been, of the man's life, Dirty Little Billy plunged into pure fiction. To Fusco, this was deeply disappointing, reinforcing the need for a definitive Billy the Kid movie. Fusco wasn't initially convinced he was the man to write that movie. Given the wealth of research he'd already collected, he briefly considered simply writing a novel about Billy. However, after striking it big as a screenwriter with 1986's Crossroads, a Robert Johnson biopic starring Ralph Macchio, he actually just wrote as an assignment in a master's class at New York University's Tisk School for the Arts. He decided his next project would be to tackle the Lincoln County War. He was motivated to write Young Guns while visiting the gravesite of Billy the Kid in Fort Sumner, New Mexico. He's quoted in the book, The Quick, the Dead, and the Revive, The Many Lives of the Western Film. He said he's buried there with some of his regulators, and the epitaph on the tombstone is one word, pals. When I saw that years ago, I knew I had my theme for Young Guns. And there's a point in the movie where the gang is in jeopardy of breaking up, and Billy the Kid, trying to keep them together, says... You get yourself three or four good pals, then you've got yourself a tribe. And there ain't nothing stronger than that. It's a key moment in the story and really defines this band of brothers. Three months of research and one month of writing later, Fusco had his first draft of Young Guns. Anything you want to comment on or add this this far? Uh, no. I don't really know an awful lot about the, the pre-production, so I'm just, okay. I'm just listening. Fusco said he wrote the screenplay with Bon Jovi's Wanted Dead or Alive in the background as mood music. Star Emilio Estevez, who was introduced to John Bon Jovi by his Breakfast Club co-star Ali Sheedy, asked if the film could use the song to play over the end credits. However, John didn't think the lyrics matched the film and said he would instead write a new song. It didn't happen in time for Young Guns. Blaze of Glory did come together for Young Guns 2. The single hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, it launched a solo album of Young Guns-themed songs by John Bon Jovi and came to identify both of the Young Guns movies. So, as Laramie said before we started, he realized this was not the movie with the great soundtrack. <laughs> Still a great movie, though. This, 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 yeah, soundtrack doesn't necessarily make the movie. Before Fusco could find his Billy, though, he had to first find someone willing to buy his script. That turned out to be harder than he expected. The newly created TriStar Pictures, which had a deal with Fusco based on Crossroads, passed. He said they weren't going to do it. By that point, Fusco's script had already attracted a director, Christopher Kane, who was Dean Kane's adopted dad. Did you know that, Laramie? I did not. Oh, yeah. Superman fan. I thought you would know that. <laughs> so he had just directed Emilio Estevez in 1985's S.E. Hinton adaptation, That Was Then, This Is Now. He was completely sold on Fusco's script by page 20, but they kept having doors shut in their face all about town. The logic was much the same as it is now for anyone looking to make a western. Where's the profit? They'd all say, remember Heaven's Gate? The 80s started off with a Western so monumentally self-indulgent and impossible to decipher that it destroyed a director's career and drove a film studio out of business. 
Heaven's Gate, which only earned back 6% of its $44 million budget, nearly killed the Western genre. Hollywood didn't release another Western of note until five years later when Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider and Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado arrived within one month of another. They each prospered at the box office, but only Pale Rider did so in a cost-efficient way, grossing $41 million while costing only $6.9 million to make. Silverado, by comparison, made around $8 million less than that while costing three, if not four times as much to make. The model was clear. If Young Guns was going to get made, it would have to be at a reduced cost. So Kane and Fusco heard the same story everywhere they went. Oh, it's a great script. It's a Western. Oh, it's exciting, but we're not going to do it. So Kane turned to producer Joe Roth, with whom he'd previously worked on the films Stone Boy and Where the Rubber Runs Black. Through this, Morgan Creek Productions, Roth had an arrangement which would be perfect for them. The details as summarized in the Times are as follows. James Robinson, Roth's Baltimore-based Subaru distributorship rich partner in Morgan Creek Productions, fully financed the film's production and in a further bid for autonomy, covered its advertising costs. So... I didn't realize that Morgan Creek Productions <laughs> was based on was somebody that had stock in Subaru, so I thought that was interesting. And of course, I wouldn't recognize Morgan Creek Productions until their big hit in the '90s with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, I I wouldn't have known. What, I recognized the logo. Yeah, but what's interesting yeah. was that logo played in this one. It did not have the theme that I associated with, which was the opening theme of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Because they've kept that theme as their for their logo ever since that movie. So, extra trivia that's not '80s related, but thought I'd throw it in there. Anyway. And now these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. The Young Guns budget came in just north of $11 million, at least half the size of Silverado's three years earlier, with the cost cutting coming largely from the choice of, to film with a non-union crew. The actors were all paid their market rate, but much of the below-the-line work was done by the locals and 
Cerrillos, New Mexico. To appease the natives, they put them to work, hiring 21 local horse wranglers, 10 local women for the costume department, and 50 local day laborers to assist in set construction, paying the latter $350 for a 32-and-a-half-hour work week. 75% of all the horses in the movie were also sourced locally. Some of the citizens complained since the community was never approached as a whole, but instead individually. Others were simply ha- simply happy to have the work. There you go. All right, well, let's jump into casting, since that's next on the list. So, This was considered the Brat Pack movie of the year, with Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, and Charlie Sheen in the leads. Casey Samatsko didn't have the same fame level as a Brat Packer, but was in some of their films, such as Back to the Future, Stand By yeah. Me, Class, and Biloxi Blues. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I was like, hold up. Yeah. He was in two <laughs> major movies before this. Right, right. I mean, yes, he wasn't recognizable, he was just no. the the lackey to the bad guy in both yeah. of them. Oh, yeah, because I think we talked about him and Kiefer Sutherland when we did our Stand By Me episode. Possibly. Yeah, I think we did. And then, and then come on, he's the guy wearing the 3D glasses behind exactly, Biff. Exactly, in Back, Back to the Future. future. <laughs> yeah, right next to Billy Zane. Uh, it was This was the mainstream breakout film for Lou Diamond Phillips, who had made a splash with La Bamba, followed by a Golden Globe nomination for his role as a gang member in Stand and Deliver. So... Yeah, I was I was about to say, see. I don't agree with that either. Cause yeah, La Bamba, Stand and Deliver, mm-hmm. two and two other really great movies before doing mm-hmm. this. One, so he was he was definitely recognizable. I mean, that was I mean, yeah, we knew who he was. Yeah. This was Dermot Mulroney's first big role in a Hollywood movie after doing after school special type work. He did work consistently, but he didn't become a household name until My Best Friend's Wedding in 1997. So it took him a little bit longer. But he's almost unrecognizable in this from, you know, from any other character he yeah, played. The, so. Yeah, being the handsome leading man mm-hmm. in romantic comedies right, right. To, to being the, the dumb guy <laughs> yeah. in this one. I was shocked with how much chewing tobacco he puts in his mouth at a time. It's just like he's... There's no way that could have been real, though. I would hope not. So it's hard to imagine anyone else playing William H. Bonney the way Estevez did. However, he wasn't the first choice. Sean Penn was originally offered the part of Billy the Kid. He couldn't do it because he was in jail for beating up an extra on the set of Colors. So Estevez said he signed on excited by the idea of an ensemble western and loving Fusco script. He was not happy with the final product, however, and I won't get into that whole story. So, But, uh... Patrick Swayze was originally offered the part of Dick Brewer, played by Sheen. Lou Diamond Phillips said Swayze told him he passed because he thought he needed to get away from the whole Brat Pack thing. He didn't want to make another ensemble movie. He was trying to do more solo work. So, so that's the main, uh, the main pack. Anything you want to say about any of them? I mean, I think you know there wasn't a whole lot about you know other people besides those two about other people considered. I think they they knew even Lou Diamond Phillips. I didn't put this in the notes, but I read it a couple of times. Lou Diamond Phillips was sent the script. And loved it, and then he was supposed to meet with you know the casting director and you know Fusco and uh, Kane, and he said he sitting there having a conversation with him, but they never gave him any audition you know pages, and he was like, I hope they're not just going to ask me to like read a specific scene and not be prepared, and then realize that they were not asking him to audition, they were offering him the role, so he did not have to audition for the part. He was like, Oh, I've I finally made it in Hollywood. I don't have to audition for anything anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so again. Not an unknown before this. He was, he was, come on. He was Richie Valens. Mm-hmm. 
That's done. Yeah. Bomba. Yeah, that was that was for sure his real breakout role, for sure. So. And, of course, as a math teacher, I have to talk about how awesome Stand and Deliver is, too. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, that is one I've got to go back and watch, because I really love that movie, but I have not seen it in a very long time, so I need to go back and rewatch that one. So. Yeah, and I'm a math teacher. I probably see it every two to three years. A few other uh, notables in the cast. Alice Carter, who plays Yen Sun, made her feature film debut in Young Guns. Uh, she went on to become an acting teacher. So, uh, a name that we've just recently talked about in our Superman 2 episode. Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp as John Tunstall. Uh, Of course, he had done Superman 2 in 1980. He was also in Legal Eagles in 1986 and Wall Street in 1987. So, he was also with Charlie Sheen. So, he, he, he was once again, we talked about, we thought he had done so much more before Superman 2. But that was kind of, I think that kind of put him more on the map, at least in the United States. So if you want to hear hear us gush over Terrence Stamp, go back and listen to our Superman 2 (laughs) episode. Jack Palance, or Palance, or however you want to say it, depending on how I feel that day, I'm going to either call him Jack Palance or Jack Palance. As L.G. Murphy, he reignited his career after being forgotten from his classic Western days, but he went on to have prominent roles in Batman in 1989, along with Tango and Cash in 1989, and his Oscar-winning performance in City Slickers in 1991. So... Uh, great villain in this movie. He was the heavy, and they talked about um, his death scene at the end that all of the younger actors stood in awe and watched him milk his death scene, which <laughs> I did think was a little over the top, but we'll we'll talk more about scenes as we get going. So, Anything you want to say about Jack Palance? Oh, I mean, he, he was awesome. I still, to this day, back when the Oscars were something worth watching, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember... I remember him, you know, coming out, like, pulling the giant Oscar on stage when Billy Crystal was hosting. <laughs> I remember him doing the push-ups yes. that he would do, yeah. even though he was, you know, in his 80s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, and he was he was great for this, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, I'm good with the death versus the, um, uh, versus the, the actual way yeah. that L.G. Murphy died in real life. Mm-hmm. This actually takes... A bunch of people who had been in movies together and puts them mm-hmm. back together. Yeah. You, yeah, you talked about some of these people. I mean, a lot of these people had done, like, this pair had done a movie together, that yeah. pair had done a movie. Of yeah. course, Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez are brothers. Mm-hmm. So, had they done Minute Work already? No. Or that, that came after. after, yeah. Okay. This was this was the first time they were in uh, a movie together, but they did not have equal billing, cause, of course, because Charlie Sheen was not in it as long as uh, Emilio Estevez. No, and Emilio Estevez was playing. Emilio <laughs> Estevez was playing the main character. Right, so. right. So yeah, so yeah, they did. Yeah, they did minute work. I think it was eighty nine. I think it was a year after when okay. they did minute work. So, uh, you failed to mention Terry O'Quinn. I haven't got there yet. He's next. Okay, on list, just so. man, I just kind of sounded like you were stopping. So I just nope. wanted to make sure. No, I cannot leave out Terry O'Quinn as Alex McSween. I would consider one of the most underrated actors in movies and television, especially through the '80s and '90s, uh, uh, even the 2000s. But I absolutely love the stepfather. Yes, which I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not the remake no. that they did. The Terry O'Quinn 1987 slasher. Yeah. yeah, 1987, whichever year it was. Mm-hmm. I love those. All three of them. Mm-hmm. Love them. I and a, yeah. Of course, I was a huge fan of Lost. Too, yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's his most iconic role for me. 
Uh, but yeah, the stepfather. I remember my sister watching that, and I've seen bits and pieces of it. I can't remember if I've seen it all the way through. But I remember, I I have fond memories of my sister seeing that for the first time with her friends at like a slumber party, and uh, yeah, just that that was that was. I think that was one of his like breakout roles for sure. So. Uh, but of course, we also know him from other movies in the '90s, like The Rocketeer, which Laramie yep. spent some good time talking about a few weeks ago in Moving Panels. She also played a, a real-life person, Howard Hughes. Yep, yep. And then he was in The Cutting Edge from 1992. Uh, you haven't seen that? Classic. Yeah. And then he was <laughs> another western, one of my my all-time favorite western, Tombstone in 1993. Oh, such a good one. <laughs> we need you to. Need you to change the show to the '90s flick flashback so we can do we'll that. We'll get one. there. We'll get there. <laughs> there's another. What's funny is there's another '80s podcast I listen to. I'm all uh, just because I like them so much. Buzz in the Tower. If you're not listening to Buzz in the Tower podcast with Mo and Max, uh, definitely go listen to them. It's a great podcast. So, uh, but they've they've talked about they they do different. They don't spend time on specific movies like we do, but they've talked about which I think is a great idea to do an episode called movies in the nineties that should have been made in the eighties. So they can, they can talk about movies they love from the nineties since it's the eighties podcast. So maybe we'll do that too. We'll just steal that idea from them. I mean, borrow, I mean, we'll borrow that idea. From them. <laughs> so a uh, little, little fun facts here. Pat Garrett was played by Patrick Wayne as in son of John yep. Wayne. I kind of saw it a little bit in his second scene, uh, when they're having, when he's having the conversation with Billy and kind of setting the trap for them at the McSween house, he doesn't have the the accent or the the manner of speech like his father, but he definitely has that presence in in his delivery. Uh, but he's much more stiff. He did, yeah, he he also he doesn't have his dad's eyes. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, John Wayne had those piercing mm-hmm. eyes. Mm-hmm. That was so much better. But John Wayne. Did a movie mm-hmm. called Chisholm. Yes, that was also based off of this, mm-hmm. although it's completely fiction thrown for a loop. <laughs> yeah, because in that one, Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett are working together during the yeah. Lincoln County War. Yeah. So you know, twisting up facts. It was it wasn't about facts back then. It was just about entertainment. So uh, I thought this was interesting. Susan McSween is played by Sharon Thomas. Uh, as in Sharon Thomas Kane, the wife of the director, Christopher Kane, who is also the mother of Dean Kane. So there's there you go. Yeah, you you have schooled me on that. I knew- I'll never claim though I know personal <laughs> stuff about actors who have played Superman. Yeah, but it was it was Superman enough that I was like, Oh, I bet you Larry knows this already. I was I, yeah. I could have stumped you. That could have been a quiz question that you would have got wrong. So yep. all right, let's talk about a few cameos, uh, probably the most notable Tom Cruise is the first person shot by Billy the Kid from McSween's house. Cruise and Estevez were friends, and Cruise was visiting him and decided he'd jump in on a scene asking if he could get shot because uh, he always wanted to be in a Western. So if you, there's a couple of good, you know, you can go on YouTube and they'll slow down. You can see it kind of a little easier to catch because it happens pretty quick. So um, Emilio Estevez also jumped in on that scene as one of the gang shooting at McSween's house. He had already finished all of his scenes for that day and thought it'd be fun just to be get dressed up as one of the enemy and shoot back at himself, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. So, and then country music superstar Randy Travis is the soldier firing the Gatling gun that shoots McSween to death. In real life, a Gatling gun was brought in for the shootout, but it was not the weapon that killed McSween. So, 
And we'll talk a little bit about fact versus film as we get into our trivia section, which I thought was going to be fun for this type of episode. So, All right, so that's the cast. Anybody I left out or anybody you want to... No, I think now you have you have hit everybody. Okay, yeah, I didn't want to... At least everybody worth mentioning. Yeah, exactly, so... I mean, well, I guess if we're talking about kind of um, surprise appearances, all that... Jack Palance's son. Yes, has a has a role in it. He gets he's well. he's the one that gets knifed. So, do you have a favorite of the uh, regulators? Was there a favorite of the group stands out you to know, you? You know, for, I mean, obviously Billy the Kid kind of stands out, but for some reason, I have always had a fondness for uh, Charlie mm. Casey mm-hmm. uh, Sizemico's mm-hmm. character. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just his his kind of innocence yeah. that he kind of portrays or whatnot. I've always just liked that character. Yeah. So, and of course it's so sad when mm-hmm. he meets his fate at, at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like Billy the kid, but I was always drawn to doc, I guess because he was probably the most level headed mm-hmm. when, uh, when uh, Dick <laughs> meets his end early on, uh, doc kind of becomes the level headed one of the crew. So, I just was always thought he was he was a great character as well, but I think they all get moments to shine in the film too, which I think was smart. Yeah, smart writing once again, good directing. Yeah, and I like the different takes that Charlie Sheen as Dick and Kiefer Sutherland as Doc, the way that they do take as kind of the guardian yeah. over yeah Billy, because Charlie is more stern. He's like, listen mm-hmm. to me, do what I'm saying. You need to do what I'm saying, which of course Billy doesn't ever <laughs> seem to no. listen. But whereas Doc is more of, I'm going to let Billy do what he's going to do, but I'm going to mm-hmm. watch and I'm going to make sure that, because I, I, th- I think of that scene when they were, uh, I think they were down in Mexico mm-hmm. and Billy confronts the bounty hunter that's after him and you just see Doc, you know, pull his gun yeah. out and set it on the yeah. table. Yeah. You know, and then of course, once Billy kills the guy, you just see him pick his gun <laughs> back his up holster. and holster yep. it back. Yeah. But... But it's always like he's 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 gonna let Billy do what Billy's gonna do because he knows he can't stop mm-hmm. him. But he's gonna make sure that they're all protected. Yeah. And now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. All right, well, since we're talking about scenes, I'll go start with iconic. What's the most iconic scene for you? If you, someone says Young Guns, what's the first scene that pops in your head? I probably would say it's uh, when Billy hops out of the... The, the chest. Uh, chest trunk yeah. and then they and they even mm-hmm. do the slow motion uh i you know that's that's honestly probably what pops into my head is the visual like if you're doing a, a mm-hmm. montage of 80s movies that's the yeah. one they're going to show yeah. um 
it's either that or it's the really again going into what they would show in a montage it's the really weird let's pose for a picture after they're all deputized oh yeah 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 like they're not posing for a picture but they all <laughs> they, they do like yeah they do like the superhero pose right right know, and then yeah. they they head off mm-hmm. but that would probably be it for me yeah i agree that when i when i think of iconic the him i see the the trunk being thrown out the second story window and then how it carefully lands yeah. You know, bottom bottom side down, top up, and then yeah. it pops open and he comes out. So that's for sure. And I think seeing that as a kid, that was like one of the coolest things. Oh my gosh, they threw him out of a window and he survived and he came out shooting. Like that was like yeah. the most heroic thing you could think to happen in that movie. So, and then seeing it as a reasonable adult, you go, "There's no yeah, way. yeah, no." It's like no way right. he not only was not injured. Mm-hmm. By that, but the fact that, like you said, that it landed. I mean, imagine if it had turned, turned and faced the house. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yep. That's why it's stuff of legend. Uh, yeah. But the other, the other scene, like I think about this, and I knew when it was coming up, I was like, "Oh, this is the scene. I love the scene." But it's scene, the scene when Charlie is has gotten shot a few times, and he's raising his gun up, and you just kind of see his eyes just above the barrel of the gun. It's kind of slow motion there. I always thought that was a great shot um, as well. So that 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 stands out to me as well. So, all right, favorite scene? Do you have? And you can have more than one because this I, this one's got a few for me. Yeah. Um. I mean, other than standoff at the end, because there's so many moments of that. Um, like I can't remember the character's name, but when you know <laughs> Billy says, "Is that so and so next to you?" Yeah. And then just <laughs> turns into the window and shoots mm. him. Um, he's not there anymore. He's not standing yeah. with you now, or whatever the line is. Yep. Uh, I do, although I think it's completely random. I do get a kick out of the peyote scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where they wake up the next morning and they're all experiencing mm-hmm. the side effects a little differently. Uh, I do get a kick out of that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at those two. Okay. So. Yeah, well, you've you've mentioned it already, but probably my favorite scene is the scene in the bar when Charlie's, you know, with the prostitute, and you've got the gunslinger, bounty hunter, you know, uh, talking smack, basically, about, you know, all the people he's killed, and he's out to get Billy the Kid, and Billy's just sitting there listening to him, he's like, hey, can I see your, is that the gun that shot, that's going to kill Billy the Kid? Can I hold it? Yeah. Uh, Sure, you know, it's just that, that whole scene, and once again... Does nothing to advance the plot. Has nothing to do with what's going on besides just filling time right there. But that whole sequence, that to me, with that to me, epitomizes Billy the Kid in that that scene. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just another one of those scenes that establishes yeah. just how I mean, really crazy mm-hmm. he was. Yeah, there he is. I see him. Where? Right there. You don't see him. And so, uh, but yeah, I so I love I love that scene. But there there are several. And then the, my other favorite scene is the shootout with Buckshot Roberts, which of course is where Dick meets his demise. But uh, that whole sequence is great um, as well. I think those are my two for sure. And I may be, I may be reminded of others, but those are the two that I kind of had made notes about that I was going to mention for sure as I was watching it. So, Well, again, going back to kind of mm-hmm. iconic scene, because you mentioned about uh, Charlie's death, but the very end when Billy... 
turns mm-hmm. around and rides back and does the you know uh, mm-hmm. reap the wind uh, line. Just that, that oh, yeah, pose yeah. of him holding the gun, shooting. That's that's another one that I think oh, yeah, ties yeah. to this movie well. And I think this was very smartly shot to get some good some of those good uh, scenes. Some of the stuff doesn't age as well like some of the slow-mo shots the grainy effect they put over some of the some of the scenes you know you know looked good on my old uh you know standard definition television but not so good when you're watching stuff in hd it looks it it kind of uh affects it some but but still good so it still works for me it makes it makes it feel like an old western yeah 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 still good I mean, it doesn't take anything away from it. It just, it, it, it kind of shows, that's when it shows it's aged a little bit to me, so. All right, so let's talk a little bit about some scenes and some trivia. Uh, these are a few things that I thought were interesting about some of the different, excuse me, uh, some of the actors and how they're processed. So, Estevez said he had to unlearn his actor's training for the role because Billy doesn't think, he just reacts. Estevez said his actors were always taught to think on camera. I really had to reverse that process and the director, Chris Kane, really stayed on me about it, saying, I have to cut because I caught you thinking. We'd do it over and over again until Billy was all reactive. So I thought that was an interesting way to look at his character, that he was very spur-of-the-moment, you know, instinct-driven. Mm-hmm. He wasn't thinking through stuff as much as everybody else. So Chavez E. Chavez is Spanish-American. In the film, his ethnicity has changed to be Native American and Mexican. Given the effort to maintain authenticity, we wondered if Chavez's story was fused with Fred Waite, a Native American regulator who was later become a politician and was elected as governor of the Chickasaw Nation. Screenwriter John Fusco told 80s Movie Guide on Twitter, Chavez E. Chavez's family had Native blood, but yes, Fred Waite was Chickasaw and I wanted the indigenous element in the posse. More than 800 Native Americans have been employed on Fusco's projects. For the record, Fusco is Italian-American. Also of note, Loon Diamond Phillips is neither Native American nor Mexican. He's Filipino-American. There you go. I, I honestly didn't know he was based on a real yeah. person. Or loosely, loosely, based, loosely yeah. based on a yeah. real person. No, I honestly, I only thought that uh, Billy, Dick, and mm-hmm. Doc were the only, of the regulators, I thought they were the only three that were actually real people. Okay. So, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, got some more down the line we'll talk about. So, uh, Dermot Mulroney wanted Dirty Steve to wet his pants when he got shot. <laughs> huh. Director Christopher Kane nixed that idea. Mulroney also proposed Dirty Steve get shot in the knees to make it all more dramatic and painful. So, Ooh, yeah. Uh, I, I, one thing that I didn't remember watching this time was when he does die, he lands in the water puddle, which I thought was an interesting way to friend end up in the water so uh, so Charlie Sheen was reportedly a terrible horse rider he couldn't keep his balance on the horse and fell off several times his horse took off after the shootout with Henry Hill and he had no clue how to make it stop so <laughs> it's probably good he it's probably good he wasn't in the long story because he would have been doing a lot more horseback riding had he been you know one of the regulators to make it to the end one of those things where you put it on your resume. Yeah, I can horseback ride. Mm-hmm. It's a lie. Right. I thought this was interesting. And actually, I, I, I read this before it got to that scene. And so I kind of saw this scene a little differently. 
In the audio commentary, Casey Samasco reveals that the prostitute Charlie goes to see was actually a longer scene, and the end of the scene, he tells the guys the woman was actually his mother. So him going to see the prostitute, whether well, he doesn't actually sleep with her, you know, he just leans his head. Yeah, but she she doesn't act like she's aware. And of I don't that. think that she, I don't <laughs> think she does know that that she could he could have been. I kind of took it as he was an orphan, or you know, he found out later. You know, she gave him to somebody else that she didn't know, or she mm. hadn't seen him since he was a boy, so she wouldn't recognize him as a man. Yeah. And so. I don't know. It adds a different element to I'm, that scene for sure. So yeah, but I, I'm glad it wasn't in there. But it makes me think when because you know he knows he, he's thinking he's about to die. What does he want to do? Of course, they're assuming he's going to sleep with. He wants to go sleep with a prostitute. But in his mind, I want to go see my mother, even though she may not know who I am. But just to be yeah. held or embraced yeah, by my mother, no, I, I thought that was an interesting. An interesting take. Yeah, I like yeah. that, but the way it was. It oh was yeah, oh yeah. Well, of course they. I mean, taking that scene out, I'm sure it was re-edited a different way to not, Maybe. not show it that way. So, I liked it because, like I said earlier, I like that. Uh, you know, kind of like his yeah. innocence. Oh yeah, yeah. And so I kind of like that aspect of it, and then of course he goes and gets married, and then it just adds another level of. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's just just. I mean, you got to think he he got to spend just that one yeah. evening. Right. With his wife, and that was yeah. it. Yeah, and I was when that scene happened too. I was like, okay, was it all this supposed to have happened in like a twenty-four hour period? Like he met the girl that morning, asked her to marry him that afternoon, and then they were married that night. Like this, it happened that maybe it happened that fast back in the old west. I don't know. I don't know. I think we are. I think there are supposed to be some some days they were there. Time. Yeah. yeah. So. All right, so the term regulators was applied to any private armed security force, usually hired by cattle, oil, or railroad barons. Their primary function was to prevent the theft or their employer's property, but they also served as muscle to enforce their employer's will. They were most often Civil War veterans who either enjoyed that kind of work or had no other marketable skills. So when you say regulators, that's kind of what they meant. So, All right, any other scenes you want to talk about before we get into fact versus film? Um, no, I think we're, we've covered at least a lot of the, the main ones. Mm-hmm. Nothing else that sticks out in my head. I mean, other than the actual, uh, uh, murder of Tunstall, mm-hmm. where they all run after the, the game hens or whatever oh, yeah, yeah. those were. And he, I mean, I, I just like that they, they, even though like we're probably about to get into, <laughs> you know, he wasn't the really father figure to them because in real life he was actually younger than Mm -hmm. some of them um yeah he was yeah yeah. but him yeah him looking at billy and saying you know boys will be boys Mm -hmm. go on and then you just see all the the bad guys coming up behind him and yeah uh yeah just another very memorable Mm -hmm. scene for me yeah tunstall was actually 24 so he was only four years older than billy at that time and as I said, there's no real talk about him being like the father figure to them. He was just kind of the leader of the gang more than more than anything else. It seems like so. Um, and that would make him younger than Doc. Mm-hmm. I know, right? In real life, I don't know who else. But that definitely would have made him younger than Doc because I think Doc was like thirty. Mm-hmm. So, which may- I, I've read a little bit about Lincoln. Yeah. 
Which another fun fact with that is Kiefer Sutherland was the youngest of the cast at 21. So <laughs> really, <laughs> yep. I would not have get. I mean, I probably would have guessed that for everybody except for Emilio. Yep. I would have just assumed Emilio was the youngest. Yep. All right, so fact versus film. Here's and there's. I'm sure there's more. I'm only going to highlight a few that I saw. So there's, you know, like I said, do a little bit of research if you want to, and kind of read the true story. It's always good for these kind of movies to go back and see what really happened versus what's portrayed in film. But these are a few of the fact versus film that I found. So Lawrence Murphy is depicted as the main antagonist in the movie, but in reality, he was terminally ill with cancer and was out of the picture before the Lincoln County War began. Before retiring to a hospital in Santa Fe, he sold all his business interests in Lincoln to his aggressive young partner, Jimmy Dolan, who, like John Tunstall, was only in his mid-20s. It was Dolan that actually directed the activities of the faction known as the House during the conflict. So, so he wasn't even there. Jack Palance wasn't even there. He didn't get shot in the head. He was dying <laughs> of cancer. So He died of cancer, yeah. yeah. So uh, Dick Brewer, played by Charlie Sheen, is shot in the stomach during the shootout with Buckshot Roberts. In reality, the top of his head was blown off. Almost everything else about the shootout is true other than Doc being shot in the hand and Roberts taking refuge in an outhouse. In reality, George Coe's finger was shot off and Roberts, who was gravely wounded by a shot to the gut that started the gunfight, was hiding in a small house instead. So, thought that was interesting. Obviously, the blowing the head off would have been a little bit too graphic for this and probably even would have uh, cost a little bit more money to set up that effect. Or even, you're talking 88, mm-hmm. so even just to make that effect look good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And then obviously you're not going to have Doc lose any appendages, because mm-hmm. then you've also got to deal with that for the rest of the movie. And, right. Yeah. And I'm fine. I like the outhouse over just doing a small little building. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It added for some good dialogue there, some good humor dialogue there. But, uh, but yeah, we're talking about, you know, kind of graphic, the... One thing I read, I didn't write it down, was uh, the director was concerned about the violence in the movie, that it was getting too extreme. He was afraid it was going to get an X rating, which, watching it now, like, I can't imagine that. But, yeah. <laughs> but they say the scene at the end when uh, Terry O'Quinn gets shot, they did not show the blood. Uh, they did not use, like, very big blood packets because with the uh, Gatling gun because they were afraid it was going to make it too graphic and would adjust the rating. So, um, yeah. That I can see. So in real life, Dirty Steve Stevens survived the Lincoln County War. He left Lincoln after the conflict, announcing his intention to relocate to Denver, Colorado, then disappeared. His ultimate fate and final resting place remain unknown. So Dirty Steve was an actual part of the regulators. Did not know that. Charlie Baudray was a real historical figure as well. In the movie, he dies. In real life, he survived until a gunfight at Stinking what a place, Stinking Springs, New Mexico. Sounds like your next there you go. Uh, vacation destination. Uh, this was actually depicted in Young Guns 2, uh, that, that location. He was laid to rest in the old Fort Sumner Cemetery. Seven months later, Billy the Kid was laid to rest beside him and Tom O'Fulliard, who was also one of the regulators. So when Murphy arrives at the siege at McSween's house, he is told that 30 men are hiding in the house. While this might be taken to be an obvious exaggeration within the film's story, this is also a nod to the historical battle at Lincoln. More than 30 regulators and their allies were pinned down across the town, with the majority hiding inside Alex McSween's house. So, yeah, I did see that a couple of times, that there were more than five of them uh, 
Sometimes it was as, as many as 20, sometimes down to 12 or 13, just depending on what period of time it was. So, Yeah, because yeah, um, the actual, like, I mean, I don't know about the siege, but the actual Lincoln County War, I mean, took place over the course of, what, like three years? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you had people joining one side mm-hmm. and then being killed and all of that. Yeah, we didn't talk about the mole. I was actually just thinking that. I was like, oh, yeah, there's that guy, which you never actually find out whether or not he was, yeah, you know, he was a mole. Right. You you don't truly find out. You you get Doc going, no, there was something up. Yeah. And, and Billy you know, is I sure that they think were. He, yeah. Yeah. But you never actually know. Billy but, seriously could have just killed yeah. an ally for them. But he was suspect when he showed up. It's like, oh, you used to be with Murphy's men. Yeah, but, the, you know, I caught him a fat sal, and they, you know, sent me over here. So, uh, but that's another iconic scene, like that whole shootout there, uh, the blood splattered on Doc's face. Yeah. Was, uh, is another iconic scene for sure. And so. Uh, yeah. Because, again, it's it's in there, but it's, that's it. Yeah. It's in there. Like, to me, it would have been different if, Maybe some other things had happened mm-hmm. to make the regulators think, you know, somehow they know we're coming. Mm-hmm. Or, but, but there's none of that. He joins them. You see him with them, I think, at the dance. Yeah. And then and then he goes out with them and Billy kills him. Because, yeah, he, so he it, has no real dialogue between that scene and that. Like, he's there, but he's not prominent yeah. with the group. So I never really felt like he was part of the group anyway. So... Yeah, which I'm sure was also intentional. Oh yeah, yeah. But but there was but what I'm saying is there wasn't even anything to make you as the audience feel like he was a Mm -hmm. mole. So that's why we didn't talk about it because we just completely forget about it. (laughs) All right, well let's talk about box office and critical reception. Young Guns was released on August 12, 1988, and took the number one spot at the box office, bumping Tom Cruise's Cocktail to second place in its second week. It made over $45 million in its full run, placing it in the top 20 highest-grossing films of 1988. So, did pretty good on an $11 million budget. So, So Rotten Tomatoes has it at 41% on the tomato meter and a 76% on audience score. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you say 41%? 41%. Oh, no. Right. IMDb is not much better. 6.9 out of 10 with a 50 on Metacritic. Oh, no. So, uh, yeah, the critics were... It was pretty much uh, split between the critics. Uh, One thing I read, I I didn't write it down, but Roger Ebert was actually one of the few, I guess you would call, quote-unquote, big critics that actually liked the movie and thought it was... Oh, that's all that matters right there. Whatever Roger Ebert (laughs) says, that's what everybody should go with. Right there. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, some people, and I could see coming out at that time, westerns were not, you know, as popular, and it was evident that they were reaching for a younger demographic. They were trying to make it cool, you know, a cooler take on an old story. So, I could see the critics, especially in the '80s, that probably wanted it to be more like a, a traditional western than it was. Probably because well, how much I know it came out before. Mm-hmm. How much before this one did Silverado come out? 
Silverado was eighty-seven, so just a year, I think. So just a year oh, before. Well, let me, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I say that. Let me double check. It was either eighty-five or eighty-seven. Eighty-five. It was eighty-five. You pulled it up, and then yeah. Pale Rider was around the same time, right? Which I didn't. I yeah, Pale Rider was eighty-five. Like I didn't even realize Pale awesome Rider was an eighties movie. I thought that was a seventies. I didn't either. So, so yeah, so eighty-five. So you had three years between. Pale Rider and Silverado and uh, Young Guns, which I think Silverado and Pale Rider both were critically accepted more. Um, yeah, and then three years after, in '92, mm-hmm. we'd get Unforgiven, yeah, which right. would just <laughs> take a bunch of Oscars. Oh yeah, yeah. That's what I was saying when the intro was kind of alluding that you had uh, after this. You of course you got like I said, Unforgiven. You got Dances with Wolves. You had Maverick with uh, uh, Mel Gibson and yeah, Mel Gibson. So, yeah, if you want to call that. Yeah, one. yeah, but still, they, it. We got and then we got Tombstone ninety three and Wyatt Earp, which yeah. nobody really wants to talk about uh, after you've seen <laughs> Tombstone. But yeah, so it, it did kind of reinvigorate the and then one of our favorite westerns you and I have talked about before, The Quick and the Dead. Oh so, yeah, Sam Raimi. Great Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. So it did open up uh, for other westerns to be made, but there were some bad ones in there too. But still, one of my favorites. When I when I think about modern westerns, uh, and I guess that would be anything from like the '80s on, because so I definitely would think of Young Guns, Young Guns to Tombstone, of course, Quick and Dead, yeah, for sure. Uh, and then more recent stuff like the um, Cowboys and Aliens. No, that wasn't <laughs> what I was gonna say. <laughs> Uh, I was gonna say what the 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 new ones are remakes. I was like three ten to Yuma with uh, Christian Bale and Russell Crowe is fantastic, yeah. and then I even liked the new uh, Magnificent Seven they did with Chris Pratt and Denzel. I thought was pretty good. So, um, so there's still been some good westerns that have come out since then. So, and there was another one that Kevin Costner did uh, at Clo- with something about range. What was the one that came out? That was like open range. Open range. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Which was really good as well. I mean, even though it's not really a western, you could almost argue talking about Kevin Costner that the Postman, yeah, is a western. Yeah, true. And of course, now he has uh, the show mm-hmm. Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kevin Costner definitely. Oh yeah, fed off of the the western revival. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we've. We've said all we can say about Young Guns, at least for, for this time. So anything else you want to add before we wrap this thing up? Uh, no, I, I think I'm good. Reap the whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because we talked about, we kind of talked about a little bit before. I kept waiting for him to say, I'll make you famous. But that's his line in Young Guns, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm your Huckleberry, but that's yeah. a completely different <laughs> yeah. movie. Yeah. But yeah, Reap the Whirlwind was definitely... Uh, still a memorable line in this one for sure. So, but all right, Larry, thanks so much for being a part of this episode. I appreciate you. Uh, of course, check out Moving Panels, Laramie's podcast, talking all things comics and superheroes. So, uh, anything you want to plug to get coming up? Uh, you know, kind of. We're ending my first full year of doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, doing talking about um. The first ever uh, theatrical animated superhero movie, which was Batman: Mask of the Phantasm, okay, is coming up. Uh, my 
my young daughter is actually joining me for an episode. We're doing uh, Teen Titans Go to the Movies. All right. And uh, and actually, just recently, Tim, uh, we talked about earlier, we did a two-parter on his and my show of Superman 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, did the theatrical cut here on the 80s flick flashback, and then we did the Donner cut on moving panels. Mm-hmm. And Tim is returning for a for actually what will be the last episode of my first full year uh, episode we actually recorded a while back uh, for Bloodshot. Oh, yeah. What a way to end a season. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a fun one. I mean, not the movie, but the podcast was fun. <laughs> no. Yeah. We recorded that in the midst of the pandemic. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did. So, all right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Once again, thank you there for being a part. Glad to have you. We'll have you back very soon, I'm sure. And uh, go check out the Moving Panels podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Another way to reach us is through our social media pages. Search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating along with a stellar written review. And don't forget to follow us on Apple and Spotify as well. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.